Hi, this is Andrea Boydman. I'm the Executive Director of Osteoscience Foundation, and I'm joined by our scientific and education liaison, Dr. Myron Tucker, for our podcast series, Generations of Regeneration. Our guest today is Dr. Edmund Bedrosian, who is a clinician in private practice in San Francisco and was the former director of the uh, Surgical Implant Training Center at Alameda Medical Center in San Francisco. And I think that for us, most especially, he is one of the mentors in our clinical observership program. So we welcome you, Dr. Bedrosian, to our podcast today. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Myron, for having me. Thank you. Glad to be here. Oh. Well, thanks so much for um, all you've done for the Osteoscience Foundation, participating, as Andrea said, in the Observership Program uh, for symposiums that you've done and now for our uh, webinar series. Um, in addition to uh, the science part of the, the webinar, um, everybody always wants to know a little bit more about you personally, and uh, this has become one of the things that Andrea and I have enjoyed the most and people that uh, tune into the podcast series uh, seem to really enjoy. So we want to get to just know a little bit more about you. And if you would kind of give us a brief rundown of, of your educational journey from the time you started college to where you've ended up, including jobs and academic positions, and let us know how you Absolutely. got to where you are. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, I uh, grew up in... Uh, in England, and I finished high school there. I came to my family immigrate to uh, San Francisco in 1976. And I attended uh, University of San Francisco uh, here in, in town uh, for my undergraduate uh, bachelor's degree in biology. And then uh, luckily was accepted into a local again, uh, dental school, University of Pacific here. And uh, after I've completed my DDS training, once again, luckily, locally uh, accepted into the, uh, their oral surgery program uh, at the Highland Hospital uh, over in Oakland. So um, I completed my residency in 1990. And um, funny story, uh, the, uh, the program director at the time, late Jack Gilbert, uh, asked me, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to start from scratch. And he said, started laughing and said, well, you're going to have a hell of a lot of free time on your hand. I said, okay. And I was like 27 years old or something. And he goes, why don't you come teach? I said, sure. So arbitrarily we picked Mondays and I said, I'll teach with, uh, I was not as assertive as I am now then. <laughs> I said, I will do this if you give me carte blanche on starting an implant program. And it was just out of the air. There was no implant program. I, I didn't get formal training when I was in residency. He agreed and he gave me uh, the opportunity to have a curriculum with restorative follow-up, surgical, all that stuff, all day Monday with an intern assigned to the emergency room uh, to take care of issues until the day was over and then go back to a normal residency, if you will. Uh, so for 30 years, I... Um, uh, was there until recently UCSF took over the program. Um, so we only have one residency program now in the Bay Area um, and uh, been in private practice at the same time uh, in San Francisco, downtown at Union Square. So that's my educational story. <laughs> oh, that's, 
It's a it's a, a great Bay Area success story there. Yeah, yeah, you know <laughs> everything in the Bay Area. Everything in the Bay Area. It's not not a bad place to be. Yeah. Um. So, what was it about oral maxillofacial surgery? I I always like to ask this question because very often there is a a person or an event or something that made uh, that made a person say yes, this this is it for me. This is the the direction that I want to go. And was there a a defining moment that made you realize oral maxillofacial surgery was the field for you? I'm debating whether I should honestly answer that question or not, because I know I know the friends that will be watching this podcast will know I'm lying if I make an elegant uh, story. Oh. But, I'm gonna, but because because there is a true there is a true tr true moment. All right, let's hear so, the true moment. Okay, all right. So, <laughs> first week of dental school. I happened to stumble into this room at lunchtime. Unbeknownst to me, I don't know how I was going on. I didn't know it was oral surgery clinic. It was a kind of a maze of a hallway. I walked in and what I saw was one of those old dental chairs that you can imagine. This is like in 1983 or whatever. High up in the chair. And if you guys recall Benny Hill and his little sidekick that Benny Hill used to always smack on, on his head, the patient looked like Benny Hill's sidekick with his mouth propped open sitting there with no one around oh and i went around the corner that's where i saw the attending and the dental students talking about obviously probably completed the full mouth extraction on this fella so i said what is this i said this is oral surgery uh what do you do here <laughs> blah 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 because i had no Wow. I have no family members who are dentists, none of that stuff. And I wasn't, yeah. So that's it. Okay, that's what I want to do. And from that day on, I laser focused on what do I need to do to get into oral surgery program. So I'm, I'm sorry for embarrassing myself, but that's the true story. That, I think that's a great story. I love it. <laughs> so, Ed, uh, you know, through our careers from uh, dental school, residency training, and then even afterwards, uh, we always have a list of uh, mentors, people who helped us uh, get to where we are and inspired us, taught us uh, a lot. So, um, you know, from the time you were a resident through uh, even yesterday, you know, who are uh, who are the mentors that uh, really are important to your career? Um, yeah, I mean, there, it's quite clear for me. Um, Felice Orion took over the program when I started. And uh, in our residency program, we had no ENT train. We still don't have ENT uh, residency or plastics at, at Highland Hospital. So oral surgery basically did everything from the clavicles up, you know. Um, and Felice uh, uh, was, is very bold, very smart, very, uh, uh, you know, let's call it contemporary or whatever. But you know, I did a orbitotomy, a Tessier orbitotomy as a fifth month resident. And these are kind of unheard of things, you know, bicoronal flaps that was never done in our residency. And she recruited Mark Bennett and also Steve Shandell. And you know who Steve Shandell is. So basically we had the West Coast Parkland, you know, we had the, uh, and, uh, it was it was fantastic. It, it she took the residency to a complete different level, and uh, so those those three are really my mentors um, on uh, thinking outside the box and being a little bit more avant-garde in picking and choosing how to treat things and not being afraid to uh, 
borrow from plastics or ENT or you know general surgery, whatever, to 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 enhance and 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 basically Felice's thing was to open our mind to get out of just the oral surgery literature and get our facts from other disciplines too, which is I think very important and kind of the basis of my talk later on, um, you know, uh, where understanding the science is really important. And then once I graduated, I again dumb luck. Um, was a mentee of P.I. Branamark, and I spent maybe 15 years following him around the world and working with him in Brazil and all of that. So that definitely uh, is what uh, established my, um, my, my, my being and my, my outlook on life when it comes to the professionalism and everything else. Oh, that's, those, those, are, those are good stories. Uh, Felice and I trained at the same time and have been incredibly good friends uh, uh, she's actually mentored me some through my career, and uh, hopefully I've done the same same for her. Uh, uh, for those that don't know Felice, she's such a petite, beautiful little woman, but I always say she is the smallest giant in our profession. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, um, we're obviously in our foundation, we're all about regenerative medicine, and um, you, the way... Uh, you work in the field that you work in, obviously you have uh, soft tissue, hard tissue problems that um, the solutions have changed a lot over the last uh, two or three decades. So since you uh, finished your residency program, if you could just pick two or three things that you think have been just kind of giant leaps in the regenerative medicine area, what, what would those be? Things that really impact your practice and your patients? Well, you know, I have a, uh, a, a different view on that, if you will. I mean, when I was training, the gold standard on grafting and regener regenerative medicine was, is, still is, the autogenous uh, bone. So did a lot of hip grafts, a lot of cranial bone grafts. Uh, so a lot of autogenous work. And then, you know, we try to simplify things. We certainly simplified the autogenous route, going to the mandible and the ramus, et cetera. Uh, but then you have your allografts and xenografts, you have PRP, you have all these other uh, techniques with titanium meshes, with the reinforced membranes, et cetera, et cetera. I think we are on our way. I, I don't think we are there. And the reason why I say we're not there is I looked at predictability the same way as uh, you would evaluate a bone graft, right? So if we pick a number, if you placed five grams of bone graft on day of surgery, when you calling this bone graft a success, my question would, would be, how many grams do you have left once you assume it's healed? Is it, is it four and a half? Is it five? Is it three? Is it one? Because if it's one, then you've got 80% loss. So I look at all this regenerative medicine, all these different techniques using allografts and xenografts as something uh, as uh, in development. I think... Uh, soft tissue like PRP with soft tissue is, is, is uh, well documented, uh, but soft PRP with heart tissue, I'm not sure if it's as, as well documented. So, so we, we are there. I just would like my colleagues and the residents and everybody else to understand that, um, to look at things that way. You know, if you, if you place five grams, how much do you have at the end? Because if it requires seven procedures to augment a soft tissue or hard tissue by two millimeters, that's a, you know, six procedures wasted. So 
uh, I think we, we, we are, and again, with Osseo Foundation and other uh, groups that are uh, researching on these things, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, future generations and future um, innovations, but I'm not sure if we're there right now, especially in the three-dimensional defects, the through-and-through defect regenerations. Those are the hardest ones. The, you know, the, 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 the veneer graft augmentations or, you know, th that's easy, but the through-and-through defects are the most difficult ones, not because the procedures uh, are poor or whatever, but because of just the healing capacity of a patient, right? The, the, be the better the soft tissue heals, the more pressure it puts on the graft, the more the graft resorbs. I mean, it's like a two-edged two sword. So um, why I'm being careful with my words is because I do a lot of legal um, defense work and I hate, uh, I hate seeing other colleagues just trash inappropriately if a, a complication and making it sound like if one, two, three was done, everything was under the practitioner's control. No, the patient's immune system, the patient's healing. So caution, I wanna see it a, a, a better um, uh, or more predictable way of managing 3D defects. I think that's the missing link in our uh, reconstructive armamentarium. I think you probably answered the next question. So I, my, my next question was going to be about what you would see as the next major scientific hurdles in the foreseeable future. And I, I think you partly answered that, but yeah, is there yeah. anything that you'd add to that? No, I think, I think uh, you know, I think if we are able to, I mean, you know, we, we all talk about digital uh, workflows, right? Well, the basis of digital workflow is analog brain, you know? So we, we have to emphasize that for the future, so, you know, we, uh, if you haven't followed fashion, you can make the same mistake. When I was in England in 1970s, platform shoes were very cool for guys. I think most of us will agree that's not a good thing. So, you know, procedures are regenerated also. And Steve Shandell used to bang me on the head and say, you've got to know history, history of the surgical procedures, history of outcomes uh, on, on different topic, uh, on uh, uh, different procedures, because that will uh, enlighten you onto managing your new patient or even thinking of new innovations. So I think if we can work with digital workflow, uh, to making sure analog uh, scientific stuff is understood and develop the three-dimensional uh, uh, defect management, I think uh, that would be fantastic for the profession. So kind of switching uh, subjects here a little bit, uh, I know you have a very vibrant, very busy um, private practice. Uh, you also um, have an extensive uh, lecture uh, schedule. You're, uh, you're one, of, one of the best uh, symposium speakers I've seen and everybody, everybody wants to hear you and uh, you, you've had some academic interactions in, in the past. Um, uh, how do you how do you balance all that? How do you make sure you're good at all those things? <laughs> uh, I, I think it's passion. You have to love it. You know, um, I, I, I love teaching. Um, again, all my mentors uh, uh, have been wonderful in my life. You know, they just appeared. And, uh, uh, you know, I think I think if uh, and I'm specifically talking to residents if you continue the, the 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 passion that you want to get into a program if you continue that during your program and then you continue it afterwards 
you will just naturally want to give back. You know, you pay it forward and um, you learn, you just share with everybody what you have learned and hopefully you learn from them. And if I can just plug one of my favorite books, the, it sounds, the, the title is a little bit harsh, Declare War on Yourself. Every resident, go pick up a Declare War on Yourself and listen to that. And that develops the passion that you need to do whatever, you know. But maybe if I knew how to play golf, Myron, I wouldn't be lecturing as much. <laughs> <laughs> I've tried. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> That's funny. So, um, you know, I'm curious what your feelings are about um, interactions with corporations and product development and consultation. I know that um, that can be, you know, really important part of, of an oral maxillofacial surgeon's career in, in developing these types of partnerships and collaborations and wanted to get your thoughts on that. Uh, in interesting you brought it up because I just... Uh had a conversation, you know, I'm on the uh, programs committee for Amos, uh, you know, DIC and all of that. And this, uh, this kind of uh, partnership has come up. Um, it's generally frowned upon. And uh, I'm not quite sure why, because you have a bunch of engineers and a bunch of uh, uh, business people who are developing a product. They know nothing about its clinical application. So they are 100% dependent on the clinic, clinician's feedback to say, hey, this implant makes sense. That surface makes sense. This bone graft material, the way you are heating it and the way you're preparing it because of the rate of resorption, it makes sense or it doesn't make sense. So, okay, in, you, know, you, you don't want to be schlepping a, a product, which uh, I think that's what the, 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 the uh, academy or the uh, academic part or whatever association parts are worried about, but you can pick those guys out. There's not that many who do that, but there are people who do that. So I think it's absolutely important. And I encourage everyone to get involved with being the, the ambassadors of our profession to corporations because they will, they will, they will make a product and it will not work because the, the consultants were not the right consultants. So, you know, before jumping on the, somebody like me who's talking about zygoma or new this implant, listen to what the person is saying and see if it's science-based. If it's science-based, then it applies to every implant system. So why don't every company go and develop the same threads? Uh, you know, the fact that there is patent issues, that's not my problem. My, 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 my job is to say this thread design works because science shows if you do this to bone, it will respond favorably as opposed to you do that to bone. So I, I, I think uh, uh, scientific input uh, to an engineer can only come from a clinician you know, who's been there, done that. And, uh, you know, uh, again, that doesn't rehash uh, ugly platform shoes for men. <laughs> um, I've seen you uh, lecture many times and uh, always amazed at uh, so many of your cases. Um, yeah, if you could think back over the past um, decade or two or in your, in your career, is there a, a, a single case or two that just really sticks out in your mind where it had a, either a huge impact on you or on the the, the patient and uh, their outcome or both? Yeah, I mean, 
you know, I did the eight eight times a year or so Brazil trips with the dealing with maxillofacial facial defects, you know, because of basal cell carcinoma. So people who are hiding in their rooms for decades because they have no face or whatever, and then you can put a couple of implants in and give them a face. Obviously, those are amazing. Uh, doing cleft palate trips uh, with Tom Andersano, uh, you know, those were very cool people who can, can never get the treatment. Uh, but kind of put it practically into um, everyday uh, life. Uh, about six years ago, I met this young man, 18 year, 19 years old at the time. Uh, with, uh, he uh, had maxillary hypoplasia with, uh, with uh, no teeth and a mandibular alveolar hypoplasia, a, a normal mandible, but alveolar bone was hypoplastic, maybe with a couple of molar teeth. He was, I don't know, 5'9", 5'10", uh, about to go to college, never had teeth. And he had bilateral cleft lip that was repaired. So here's a young man, and I have two boys. I mean, they're in their 30s, but yeah, I, 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 never had teeth and had gone through two cranial bone grafts that really don't do much uh, in that kind of situation. And there was a plan for a hip graft um, and uh, was somehow referred to me from Stanford. And we were able to treat him in one sitting with, for example, the graftless concept of quadzygoma with the, you know, tilted implants on the bottom. And within one day, you took a guy from nothing to having teeth. And I just can't imagine, uh, I could see it in his eyes. But no, I never talked about it because I didn't want to just bring it up. You know, how do you, how did you feel with no teeth? You know, when you were 16 years old, I mean, that's kind of a crazy question. Yeah. I felt great. You know? So uh, I, I could just tell from his eyes that uh, there was a huge, huge, uh, you know, boost to his self-esteem. And then interesting thing, some, sometimes you don't think about it. If you have no lip support, no facial support, your muscles haven't developed. If you have bilateral cleft lip, you have even bigger problem. So I had to teach him not only I mean, oral hygiene and, and dietary restriction, blah, 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 during the osteointegration. I had to teach him to pucker his lips, you know, how to do the things that we find normal. He had, he had no, uh, no function because he never used it. He had no, no reason to use it. And then to see a big gap at relaxation developing into almost a normal you know, lip incompetence at rest or lip competence at rest, whatever you want to call it. I don't know. I, 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 I think I got more satisfaction than he did, but it, that, that, that remains in my mind because it's a young man going to college and it was just, uh, yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's an amazing story. It's yeah. amazing story. Yeah, like goosebumps when you're thinking about how that person's life <laughs> is just Change can you imagine change. and we we're not heart transplant patients i mean doctors but we we do affect people's lives i think right. yeah and it's such a pivotal point in his life and about yeah. to uh, sort of on, on the cusp of adulthood there about to exactly happen. yeah that's exactly oh, i love that story yeah, yeah. Nice. thank you sure so um i i guess our our penultimate question here um, I know the answer is not golf, but is there something um, something about yourself that that um, that people don't know about you that they would find interesting? Oh my god! Is there a oh hobby or a collection or anything <laughs> that? <laughs> oh my god! What do I tell you? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I like uh, I like uh, anything that has an engine. You know, I have a I have a single engine 
license for planes. I like boats. I like cars. I, a lot of people know that. Um, and I know sports like tennis and skiing and all that. But uh, funny story. I love travel. And my favorite country in the world, my favorite uh, city in the world is Paris. Since I'm, since I'm just laying it all out there, might as well just finish with this. Um, so I went to King's School Gloucester, which is one of the eight Henry, schools that Henry VIII established uh, when he decided that maybe educating people is good. And he started off with <laughs> clergies. So I was King's School Gloucester, like King's College London and all that. And that's where the royal family came when Windsor was being renovated. Windsor Cathedral was being renovated. So um, we had a huge choir that had a pretty significant uh, status then. And uh, we used to go to Notre Dame twice a year and sing at Notre Dame. And the Notre Dame choir would come to Gloucester and sing there. Okay, so from, I don't know, nine years old to 11, 12 years old, my voice was you know, high enough. But then it became kind of goofy. So three of, of my friends and I, we faked it. We faked <gasps> it until we were 15. We faked everything just to stay in the choir, in the choir. so that we could go down. We take the bus down to the south of uh, uh, England, take the hovercraft over the English Channel, go to Notre Dame, buy a baguette, stick it in our uniform, as you can imagine, and chew on that for lunch and go to Notre Dame and go gallivant the streets of Paris. So streets of Paris are no different than streets of San Francisco or New York to me. So I love traveling. And if you told me just you got one place to go, that's where I'm going to go. I just uh, so I just thought it was the funnest. Oh, <laughs> that's great. I'm exposing myself. There you go. That's a great that. story. I can't wait to get back to Paris. The, the one time I was there, there was um, a citywide strike and everything was closed. Oh, yeah. We wanted to take a train out to Giverney. Nope, it's closed. And so we were, you know, we, we walked around and it was lovely, but I wasn't there for nearly long enough. So I yeah. definitely on my bucket list, especially yeah, yeah. I'm there. So I'll, I'll think of you singing when I get to <laughs> <laughs> Faking it. <laughs> singing and then not singing. That's right. Wow, this is this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, you. I guess my, my very last question is, um, is there anybody else that you think we should include in our in our webinar podcast series that we should that we should put on our list? Yeah, I, I would, um, you know, uh, Craig Mish, I think we have like mind. Uh, I think uh, Craig is a is a fantastic uh, uh, oral surgeon He's a prosthodontist also. And I think the uh, the uh, the synergy that I mean, oral surgeons must know pros uh, uh, today. I mean, it's not an excuse anymore. You have to know it. It makes you a better oral surgeon, if if anything else. So I think, and and he is a very linear speaker, and he is not shy of calling out procedures that are not. Uh, yeah, he is as shy as I am. So I think I think I would love to hear his his choir story for sure <laughs> and uh, also i would love to hear the you know his his thoughts and lectures i i think that would be a wonderful addition to it and i want to before i forget i want to thank you guys myron you and andrea for uh creating this platform for us to share our experiences and have our colleagues uh you know uh, maybe just listen to it and learn a little bit from it and I learned from listening to the other podcasts that you have. So it's, it's a wonderful thing you're doing. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. We're really glad you were a part of it. 
Thanks. Yeah, Ed, thanks uh, for all that uh, you, you've done for uh, our foundation and for the webinar series, but for the specialty as a whole and for all your patients. So thanks so much for uh, spending some time with us today. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. All right. Bye-bye. To learn more about Osteoscience Foundation, visit osteoscience.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn.